Let's move on to what's happening over at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the Supreme Court. This is really, really interesting to me because the it looks like that the Supreme Court is going to overturn a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals from the Fifth Circuit. So the U.S. Court of Appeals from the Fifth Circuit is the most conservative circuit in the country. Mm. Okay. Um, it's down in New Orleans, and it ruled last year that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that their funding mechanism is afoul of the Appropriations Clause of the Constitution. So they're directly attacking the constitutionality of how the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau gets its money to operate. This is So now, how is it operated? This is how it operates. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is funded through the Federal Reserve System itself. It is not funded by Congress. It is an amount that is determined by the Bureau so long as it does not exceed 12% of the system's overall operating expenses. In 2022, the fiscal year, the agency requested <coughs> and received $641 million and seven hundred of the $734 million available. So it's determining its own expenses and its own operating budget based off its needs and it gets fund it gets funded through the penalties that it collects from the people that they find guilty of consumer financial fraud mm. and from the Federal Reserve system generally. Now, conservatives hate this because it is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is in like a lockbox away from any type of partisan politics. It can't really be attacked on the congressional level without attacking the legislation entirely. Mm -hmm. You can't just defund it. Like the same way Republicans want to defund the Department of Education, yeah. you can't just defund the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This thing's here to stay, mm. right? So what's good news, which it's hard to come by some nowadays, a majority of the justices on the Supreme Court seemed ready to reject the challenge of the constitutionality of the CFPB. So even the conservative judges were like, I don't really think you have a lot of standing here, guys. Mm. Um, this is at stake of this is not just the continued functioning of this specific agency, um, but it is also a target of every regulation and enforcement action it has taken in the last dozen years of its existence. All of it, if this goes over, a lot of its enforced actions would have to be rescinded and money given back. Wow. Which would be wild. But like I said... The Supreme Court is not having it. Even Clarence Thomas has said, he's like, this doesn't actually seem too intense for me. Really? Yeah, because Clarence Thomas said it actually falls perfectly within the, um, what's the word? The Appropriations Clause, because Congress has said the Federal Reserve should get the funds to appropriate it. So Congress has determined how it's getting appropriated. Interesting. Okay. So it looks like it's fine, if which Clarence is cool. If Clarence Thomas is leaving it alone, then yeah, it's probably safe. And then do you think this also is going to have repercussions for i don't know if a vivek got in there and decided we're done with the department of education mm. yeah i mean i think it could okay i think it could i mean honestly i think this decision might actually hold off and protect a lot of these agencies from executive overreach yeah and it's funny because now it's not just vivek it's like a bunch of these other candidates yeah. i mean what at least half of the republican field has said that they want to shut down the department of education i think that they've been saying they want to shut that department down since 2012 in debates yeah it's been a long time yeah and and vivek is the one who's actually like gone and said how he's going to do it and he's he's acknowledged they're going to sue us but i've studied the supreme court and they're going to rule in favor of me and maybe not right and maybe not. probably not so 
All right, now I want to go into some geopolitics here. I want to talk yes. about the I want to talk about the economic situation of Russia right now. Love it. New data came out, right? I've yes. been, I've watched a few videos on okay, this. Okay, good. Yep. Good. So, do you want to take the lead on it? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. <coughs> God damn it. Ben, you can't make me laugh. Okay. <laughs> Russia is going through turmoil at the moment. It's kind of going under the radar because Russia has stopped posting a lot of its economic data. They don't post their inflation numbers nationally, really. Mm. We have to pull it um, from other sources. They don't post a lot of their data. So we have to kind of read the tea leaves. But we do know what the legislation they're passing and what their policies are. Russia is stopping all exports of petroleum and petroleum-related products. This is a big deal. 45% of its refining capabilities are currently offline. And at home, they are facing shortages of petroleum. Now, this is insane to me because petroleum products is one of their number one exports. Mm -hmm. This is their big thing that they sell to the international stage. How could you not sell it anymore? Well, here's the answer. They currently have a shortage at home. And they're going through harvest season where every farmer across Russia needs to have enough gasoline to fill up their tractor and harvest food. Otherwise, Russia won't have enough food to feed itself. And we all know that with the sanctions, getting food abroad ain't that easy right now. Mm -hmm. So with farmers needing so much supply at home and they, need the, and they need the oil for the war effort, they're no longer able to sell this on the international market, really crippling their budget deficit. We've talked a lot about how their budget deficit has grown and grown and grown, and it's only continued to grow after this. Um, what I find notable is that oil prices are still going up mm -hmm. despite a global economic slowdown. This shouldn't really be happening. When the country and when the world goes into recession, you expect oil prices to decline because there's less of a demand, demand. Yeah. for oil, mm -hmm. right? Um, but what has happened is OPEC has reduced the supplies to get the price back up, which is very common. OPEC kind of likes to keep it at this $80 a barrel number. Mm -hmm. um, right now, we are at $96 a barrel. Yeah, we're at $96 a barrel right now. Um, but now, Russia reducing exports is also driving up prices, mm -hmm. which is now going to put other countries that get oil from Russia on recession watch. Because now this is going to raise prices for all their other stuff as well. Um, now, foreign sanctions have been put on Russia for a while now. One of the big heavy hitters, which really caused the Russian budget deficit to skyrocket so much, was the price cap on Russian oil. But it looks like Russia is finding a way to subvert the price cap. So on December 5th, all Russian oil was price capped at $60. How is this even enforced? So when a Russian exporter had to use ships or insurance that was provided by the West, which Russia does not have its own fleet, and the insurance companies are not based in Russia, the companies involved would check for documentation that Russia had not sold it for above $60 a barrel. So very easy. And we saw an immediate decrease right after this um, sanction was passed. We saw immediate decrease down to $50, $55, average $55 uh, for prices of oil. But since then, it's gone up to $83 
which is interesting. Why did the price cap start failing? As of July, it started increasing from that 55 number up to $83 a barrel. Mm -hmm. How are they getting around it? Well, it's because they're selling more oil through pipelines, not through ships that don't need insurance companies. They're selling oil through pipelines to China and selling without Western ships for the first time in a long time. Yeah, I've so what I learned about this is the pipelines are part of it. Part of it also, so you mentioned the insurance problem, right? Basically, Russia, China, and India have set up their own state-sponsored insurance programs so they don't have to go through these Western brokers anymore. They've also bought really, really old oil tankers that they can source from the East so they don't need to rely on the West and they can still ship around the area. Plus, these these oil tankers are important because... They don't. They aren't easily tracked because they lack the technology that ships need to have that tracking. So it becomes easier to kind of get lost at sea and not know that they came from Russia. Oh, right? no. Yeah, so they can get it out more easily that way. And But I'm mostly on board with you here. What I had heard is the West intended to use these financial instruments, these financial mechanisms to clamp down on this. And it seems that really the, the Russia-China and I guess India is getting in on it, but their their axis is profiting <coughs> off of it. <coughs> what sucks is I don't, I do. We cannot afford India to fall into the new axis. I don't think they are. But They're India, not. India is just profiting off staying neutral. Yes, right now they're profiting off staying neutral right now. Yeah, um, which I wish they weren't. Obviously, I want India to join the new allies, but, but also, but. Then you get into the same problem that you had with Saudi Arabia. Like India is not a True. humanitarianly good country. True, they are an illiberal democracy. If there was one, right? exactly. So yeah, yeah, no doubt about that. Um, now, what's happening to Roy, uh, Russian oil revenue? Right. So it's the largest part of Russia's income. It's two hundred seventy-five million dollars per day hmm. at a hundred billion barrels. Okay, yeah, it's wild, wild. But despite oil prices going up, these bans on exports are staying. And with these bans on exports, every day that this ban is up, Russia is losing $270 million worth of income every single day. Wait, 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 wait. Didn't you just say it's $275 million per day? Yeah, that's usually? what I just said. So they're losing 270 of that? Well, they're losing all of it because they're not exporting any more oil. No, but they, but you did you just you just said that they're getting around it. Didn't we just talk about that, how they're getting around it? Or were you, you were just saying how they're getting it through pipelines. No, I'm... Even so, I'm confused. okay. Wait, then I'm also confused. <laughs> Wait a second. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> it's okay. Oh, we can skip over that. We're gonna skip over this one. We're yeah. gonna cut this one. Well, out. we no, we're not gonna cut it. No, we've already talked about it too much. And I want to talk about the other side. Don't you dare turn that off. Oh, I wasn't even gonna. Okay. Oh um, the other, the other part of the other kind of lifeblood of the Russian economy is natural gas, Mm -hmm. which I see you have some of here. Um, The recent data that came out about natural gas, so the oil data was like, okay, these sanctions aren't really working that well because Russia is finding these other avenues to export their oil. So oil sanctions on Russia have not worked that well. Um, They found ways to get around it. They've been piping a bunch of gas into China. But good news is sanctions on natural gas has had a huge effect. Hell yeah. So in the first half of 2023, Gazprom, Russia's natural gas monopoly owned by the state, 
reported that it produced 179.45 billion cubic meters. That is a year-on-year decrease of nearly 25% and is the least amount of natural gas production they've had in a half a year since the fall of the Soviet Union. Wow. Since the end of the Cold War. Yeah. Are you so, kidding me? Yeah. It's been huge. Uh, basically, Russia was hoping to hold Europe hostage and force it to keep buying Russian gas by initially emptying its coffers and making them really, really desperate. But what happened is American natural gas, along with some from Norway and Qatar, have meant that the the EU didn't have to cave in when Putin cut off the flows. Mm -hmm. So now, instead, Putin was just held, like, he was left holding the bag because he tried to cut off the production and make them super dependent on him and wanting more of that production, but they didn't need to come crawling back. So he just lost all of that money, right? Um, this is really good news for the Western sanctions. It means that they're actually working. Uh, and that's a lot of income that Russia has missed out on and can't use to fund its war effort. Yeah, and now all of this is drastically affecting its currency. So the ruble is now currently collapsing in value. Mm. As of today, it actually reached 100 rubles for every equals $1. So every ruble is one cent of US dollars right now. Wow. It pe- it. It reached that back in August and then quickly went back to around 90. What brought it down so fast? Massive buying and interest rate hikes from the Russian Central Bank. So the Russian Central Bank saw the ruble prices collapsing. And in response, the Russian Central Bank bought up a ton of rubles from the market, Mm. you know, artificially increasing demand, raising the price of the ruble. They also went on to raise interest rates. The initial rates uh, had some initial effects, but they were short-lived. They are now currently at 13% interest rates. That's where they're at now. Wow. So they can't really, every time they go higher and higher, it makes it harder and harder for the economy to keep growing, right? Totally. So as you were talking about with natural gas, Russia has tried to tie its its currency to natural gas the way the U.S. dollar is tied to oil. The the fluctuations of oil prices really follows the fluctuations of the U.S. dollar because most international oil transactions, if not all, use the U.S. dollar mm-hmm. for facilitation. Now, the, Russia was trying to do this with the ruble by demanding that all unfriendly nations had to pay for natural gas imports through the ruble. But like you were saying, they just said no. Mm-hmm. They said, we're not going to do it. And these unfriendly nations are no longer buying from Russia at all. Exactly. So their their plan to tie the ruble to natural gas has failed. And now they're at, you know, one ruble equals one cent. When this goes on to impact inflation, because it will, we've seen this in Argentina with their food stuff, mm-hmm. right? That was the number one exporter, blah, blah, blah. We know that this is going to it lead to inflation in the long run. I wonder what that does to the Russian citizen mm. and how they believe in the government at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, what it does to the stability of the country. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know. Inflation I'm li- we we uh, <coughs> there's so much animosity against Joe Biden for inflation here. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine if you know all the inflation was because of a war Joe Biden started, right? Yeah. I mean that's even harder to sell. Um, so now in the United States, we are currently facing a little bit of an oil shortage at the moment. Mm. Um, we currently, um, I want to talk about the 
Cushing Stocks of Oil. This is a massive oil uh, storage facility that kind of intersects all the major pipelines. I'm pretty sure this is in Missouri. It's in that region. Um, and it's currently at one of its lowest points over the last decade. It's at 229, 202.9 um, million barrels or something like that. So at 20%, when it gets to 20%, this is this is like considered operational lows hmm. because you don't want to be using the bottom 20% of any oil container because the oil that's at the very bottom is the worst quality because it's been there the longest and the oldest and sediment is starting to build up at the bottom. Okay. So you really don't want to use the bottom 20% of your tank. So the fact that it's getting so low means that they need to start buying up oil and buying it fast. So the world is very, very hungry for oil. And I think this will lead to a U.S. increasing in the amount of oil that it exports abroad. That's what I think will happen here. Why does the, the Cushing um, reserves going down, why does that mean the U.S. will export more? So the Cushing reserves is an example of just the world being hungrier for oil. Yes. Okay. Because the because what's going to happen here is the United States doesn't have an export ban on oil. Yes. So the companies have no incentive to keep all the oil in the United States. The companies are going to have incentives to sell the oil everywhere, yeah. right? So this is an example just how in demand oil is at the moment. Okay. We used to have an export ban on oil. We used to have that back in the day. Not anymore, though. I think that was gone away with in 2013. Okay. My understanding, too, is that our refinery capabilities for oil here don't match up with the oil that we drill at home yeah that's right so us having an export ban really makes very little sense yeah and that's why it was gone away with back in the day that's yeah. exactly why because okay. we didn't refine that type of oil yeah yeah that's exactly why which also does suck like as a slight tangent because we talked about when we were talking about saudi arabia how it sucks that we are still dependent on opec for oil and that mm -hmm. they kind of set the price that we have here but it just takes so much upfront capital to get refinery for the different type of oil that we drill here yeah that i think they're they're gonna bite the bullet and they think that it's just better to keep dealing with it yeah for sure yeah whatever um but there is some amazing news on the u.s economy the september jobs report has been released yes and, not 12 hours ago and wow was it banging guys economists expected that it would be around 170 thousand jobs created that was the economist estimate i was reading news articles on wednesday that some people were saying that it was going to be only ninety thousand jobs added um and there was already like turbulence in the market because it was low mm -hmm. well in september we have added three hundred and thirty-six thousand jobs in one month the largest month since january of 2023 this is gangbusters this is amazing and i know it's going to get revised down I don't know about that, guys. The, the previous two months have actually been revised up some 20, 30, 40,000 jobs. It's wild. It's wild. Yeah. It means that the labor market is strong. It's growing. Our economy is, our economy is honestly extremely resilient at the moment. We yeah. are invincible. It's, it's, it's shocking. It, it, it makes me feel so reassured. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because there was so much craziness and fright that inflation was we were going to enter this period of stagflation again yeah where we'd have high inflation and no growth mm -hmm. and it looks like we just had a soft landing yeah it's it's crazy because economists and the fed and jerome powell and his speeches they still are very much keeping the door open to miss the soft landing like they're they keep despite the strong data that continues to come and they're still like 
No, I still would side that we're going to have some kind of recession at some point, right? But it's the further they have to kick the can down the road, the the better our chances of missing that is. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. Absolutely. And I think that the, the Federal Reserve looks at this jobs report and they see bad news for them. Yes. Right. Jerome Powell has been on the record saying that he wants to crush the jobs market. He wants unemployment to go up. He wants he he wants unemployment to reach like 5%. Mm. So every time he sees a jobs report like this where unemployment is still 3.8, he's like, I don't know, maybe we got to raise those interest rates again. Yeah. That's what he's thinking. But I hope it's starting to switch because we see wages. That's the next piece. We still see wages rising faster than inflation over the last year. Yes. So 4.2% wage growth in September over last year, with the consumer financial part, uh, price index being 3.7 of August. We don't have the September number yet. That comes out on the 15th of every month. Um, jobs report comes out on the first Friday of every month. The CPI report comes out on the first 15th. Uh, or not the first 15th, the 15th of every month. Um, but I don't expect the CPI to go much higher and get over that 4.2 number. So what that tells me is, Jerome Powell, just accept that we made it. Just all the guys at the Fed, just accept that we did it and that we had the soft landing Yeah, and get ready to move on. Like, I... Like, I, If the inflation is going down, and the last time we talked about inflation, we saw core inflation has been steadily declining, you don't have to raise rates again. Right. We, we, we're on track. We're going down to 2 or to 2.5 or whatever you want it to be. Just let it keep happening. Exactly. Exactly. There's no reason to crush the labor market right now. We're doing fine with inflation. It's going fine. Um, where were these jobs getting created? Uh, we saw a lot of jobs in the leisure and hospitality place. I was actually really shocked for that. What I have to say on that, I have to make an immigration reference really quick. Yeah. Okay. Immigrants fulfill those jobs. Please. I, I doubt this was an immediate effect. I think it's a little bit too fast mm -hmm. to be the Biden granting TPS to about 470,000 Venezuelans. We talked about this on our last show. Um, but this is more of a reason to allow immigrants to come here and work, mm -hmm. right? Because they see, fill these jobs. We see leisure and hospitality jobs going up and growing. We see that immigrants are ready to go into those jobs. Yeah. That's what that they, they, they that is the jobs that they're most likely to get. And if that's the sector that's growing, that's where we need more workers. It's a simple it's equation. A simple equation. You guys can get it. I know you can. I know you can. <laughs> we it. we can do it, guys. I believe in you. Yeah. Um, then government added 73,000 jobs, education and health, 70,000, business services up 21,000, which is awesome because business services is normally an indicator. When business services are negative, that's when that's a recession indicator. Mm. I talked about this two months ago. There was a negative job growth or job losses in the business sec in the business services sector. Um, and because those are contractors. Those are the consultants, right? Mm -hmm. Companies fire those people when they go into financial restraints. Those are the financial difficulties. Those are the first people they fire. If we're seeing more business services get added, that means these companies are very, very happy with their balance sheets right now, yep. right? So now we see higher in retail, 17,000 in manufacturing. Huge. Maybe. That's huge, guys. Huge. That's huge. That's the largest. That is that is the largest manufacturing increase we've seen this year so far. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Construction up 11,000. Love to see it. I know with the last jobs report, I did a big deep dive on construction. I wasn't able to update all my spreadsheets and data because the job report only came out today and I yeah. do have a full-time job. Really unfortunate timing, honestly. I know. It sucks. Yeah. Um, but next month, next month. Yeah. 
I just think, I, I think to me, it looks like the jobs here in America, or our job market right now is almost invincible. I, it's what it seems like. I mean, we've just gotten so many of these months of like, holy cow, and this is crazy. It's like the same story every time. Wow. Who would have thought? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All economists are wrong. Wow. <laughs> Economy's great. Wow. Economists are always wrong, dude. It's crazy. God, economists shouldn't be a job. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. No, it's just crazy to me. Yeah. I, you know what's not on this sheet that I want to talk about for a second? Okay. Biden is going to be upping the number of deportations for illegal immigrants from Venezuela. Really? So what he's done... To, to Mexico? Because I... I, I think I think, think it's to me- I think it's to Venezuela. I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up because okay, as far as what we read before, he can't send them to Venezuela. You're right. Go look that up for me. So okay. where are these Venezuelans? But I think he he's upping the number of deportations of Venezuelans who are here illegally, and the reason he's doing that is because he has granted 470,000 of them permission to work, and has. And but has stated that it is only for people who have arrived before July 31st. What do you find? The Venezuelan government has agreed to take back deported migrants. There we go. So he's reestablished those ties and he can resume direct repatriation flights. Wow. There Interesting. It is. There it is. Huh. I'm I'm curious. I'm I'm looking for information on how and so they did that. But go ahead. I'm please. upset. Really? Well, I would want them all to have I would want them all to have jobs. I don't know. I think I think this is where again. I, I agree with giving them jobs, but there is still something to be said for knowing who is coming in, for knowing that they don't have a criminal record. And that's, again, we talk about beefing up the legal immigration system mm-hmm. and... But, okay, I'll let you finish. And, and shutting down the illegal immigration partly by beefing up legal immigration. And creating more opportunities. Okay. But we know that illegal immigrants are less likely to commit crimes. Yes. Right? Yes. So we know so like the crime thing shouldn't be a fear. I guess you're you're right, but then there's there's this other perspective of there was a report recently that Chinese nationals have breached US military bases in potentially sensitive areas like twenty or thirty or forty times in the past year. Because Is that because of illegal immigration? Is that why? I don't know. Okay. I So the question is are you are you advocating just straight up for open borders? I'm advocating for an immediate rewrite of how we do immigration at the moment. But I'm not I am never going to be for deportations. If no. you stop them, you stop them at the border. <laughs> if they make it in, they just get in. If they yeah, at a reasonable rate, I think so because what are we going to do? What are we we're going to have a we're, we're going to have a uh, a national Gestapo coming in and banging down doors mm. of families and sending them back to areas where they're not safe. I mean, there's an amazing video of a woman who's sneaking her child under barbed wire to get her into Mexico. And she's using a piece of cardboard and then sliding her baby under the barbed wire with the cardboard protecting the baby, sliding her under and then handing her to the baby to somebody else on the other side of the border. If you're looking at that image... And you're saying that the issue with that event and that moment is she's breaking the law. You're wrong. Because that is the type of person I want in America. And those are the type of people I want to be here. She's fleeing a repressive government stricken with poverty, coming here to make her life better. I want to hear end of story. I I hear you. Right? Um. 
But I, I'm still, that's where I'm wondering, can we make it happen legally? Can we make it happen legally? I want it to happen legally, but I don't know if I'm willing to give up the benefits to her or the benefits to me that we've talked about. Of having illegal immigrants? Yeah. Just for the law? I don't know if I like that. Well, I think I think the question is then, well, can are you okay with legalizing open borders? Not not straight open borders. No. Why? Cuz I don't want that to if there is a policy that's going to be passed, right? If there is a policy that's going to be passed, I want it to be the most streamlined immigration system where you can come into a port of entry, very quickly get set up with a citizenship test and get put on the process to become a citizen of the United States. I want it to become as easy as possible. Okay. That's my preferred policy. Okay. Okay. So you still, yes, but until then. Until then, no deportations. You could have a strong border. Look, honestly, Joe Biden's building a border wall too. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of okay with him building the border wall. Why? I'm okay with that because that doesn't, that doesn't, destroy the family unit or make me feel like we're living in this disgusting police state with these second-class citizens that have to hide amongst us. When I think of illegal immigrants working really hard for in this country, paying their taxes as we've talked about, committing less crimes as we've talked about, then they also have to worry about a, a national Gestapo that's always looking for them trying to send them back to a place that they might not have been there, might not have been to for years, that's a problem. You want to talk about deportations for people who break the law? I'm on board. Deport every single person who breaks the law. Okay. Okay? If someone breaks the law and they're here illegally, deport them immediately. I want to make this argument on a different... Because I think I think you're right. Like, we've gone over the effects of immigration. We know they're all technically good. Okay, so do you think that illegal immigration stokes the flames of populism more than legal i actually don't think so i think that if we were to switch to a legal immigration system that was easy for unskilled laborers to come into the country that i want i think we would see almost the exact same amount of animosity okay um my evidence for this would be what happens to the irish when they come in the the potato famine Mm. all those guys were legal but they said no irish in this building they yeah. put up the signs. They had a whole political party called the Know Nothings that were hyper nationalist that wanted to cut all immigration everywhere. Yeah, I don't think legal immigration is the problem. That's why I don't like getting caught up on it. I only think it's an immigrant problem. I don't think it's an illegal legal problem. And I think by putting it as an illegal versus legal problem, we're like letting them get away with it. Okay, that's how I feel. Like there are so many times in our comment section where we talk about illegal immigrants or, and then they're like, or we talk about immigrants and then they're like, you didn't mention the fact that they're illegal. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, okay, well actually they're asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. So they're technically not illegal. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, but what does the asylum process even mean? That doesn't mean anything. It's like, okay, well then your problem, their problem isn't with illegal immigration. Your problem is with immigration period. Mm-hmm. Um, and even great example today. This is an awesome example. Carrie Lake and Ruben Gallego interacted at an Arizona airport. Ruben Gallego is the Democrat running for Arizona uh, Senate, and Carrie Lake is the woman who is running for Arizona Senate. Um, they're having a massive argument, and Ruben Gallego says, "I want a nice immigration system that makes it very easy for people to come in." And then Carrie Lake is like, "We have enough people. We don't want anybody. The country's full." 
that's the dividing line. Mm. It's not the legal illegal. I think it's a red herring. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I think I'm kind of with you because also the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, if, uh, if one of the parties comes out strongly for immigration, even if it's legal or illegal, like, but let's say they come out for legal immigration and for really widening the scope of legal immigration, mm-hmm. that's just going to play that much worse with the opposition in the polls. That's going to galvanize the opposition to go to the polls more because they're, I think you're right. At some level, it is just an immigration problem. And mm-hmm. so the scariest thing is to make this all of this immigration legal yep. because then you have no you have no argument to fall back on. Right. Then it's like, no, 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 no. I don't like brown people. What are we doing? Exactly. Right. Then, then it's all you got. Yeah. Um, but this type of animosity is not only in the United States right now. No. This animosity is global. It's in Poland. It's in Slovakia. It's in Germany. It's in France. It's in France. Yep. It's in everywhere. Totally. But it's time we switch to German politics because something... Oh. Yeah. Th- this is our last card event. Let's do it. It's time we talk about German politics. This is massive news that cannot be understated. Mm. For the first time in modern German history, the far right and the center right have worked together to pass some piece of legislation at the local level. This is the first time that the far right in Germany has been part of a piece of legislation since the Nazi party. So the center right legislators in the East German state of Thuringia wanted to cut local property taxes by a small amount and did so with the support of the far right alternative for Germany or the AFD. Now, when you first hear this, they cut property taxes by a little bit. That's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. This is a massive deal for the psyche and for the of the German people and for the system of German governments and its relis- re- resiliency against anti-democratic forces. This is exactly how you open the door. Yeah. You open the door with a move that seems like it's not a big deal, right? Yeah. And then the next thing that's a little bit higher seems like it's not a big deal either because it's only a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. And this is when it gets like really, really scary. It's when the middle classes and the bourgeois say, you know what, I want a tax cut. Let's side with the Nazis. Yep. That's when everything goes to hell, and that's what the CDU is choosing to do in Thuringia. So this is coming from the leader of the Green Party. Um, For me, a taboo has been broken. It shows me not only that the firewall is gone, but that there is now open collaboration. (laughs) That's strong language. And that's what is feeling throughout all of these other German parties. Now, this is happening a lot in East Germany. AFD now leads in polls around 20 Eight percent. Last time we talked about AFD, it was at twenty-two. They've gone up six points since the last time we talked about the AFD. Wow. Next year, <laughs> the eastern states of Thuringia, Saxony, and Brandenburg will all hold parliamentary elections, and polls show that the party is leading in all three of the states. Wow! Every single one of them. Now, the firewall is history. The CDU and the AFD are in open collaboration. Um, the the Thuringia is just the beginning, the AFD party leader says, Alice Weidel, posted on X, formerly Twitter. It's time to respond to the democratic will of the citizens everywhere in Germany. The AFD is saying to you that the firewall is history and Thuringia is just the beginning. Believe them when they say that they're winning. Please. Yeah. This is scary stuff. And what I think is so fascinating is Thuringia 
has a long history of far-right politics in Germany specifically, okay? In the 1930s, Thuringia was the first state where the Nazi party took real governing power in a coalition with conservative parties. What were these conservative parties that joined the Nazi party? The Christian National Peasants Farmers Party, the Reich Party of the German Middle Class, the Germans People's Party. These are the people who let the Nazis get to where they were, okay? There's a great book called The Death of Democracy, and it outlines how this happened. This is the beginning. When you get conservatives and the middle class to say, no, you know what? I'll accept hatred of the other as long as you cut my taxes. That's how we get here. So Germany, you got to get your act together because this is insanity to it's me. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's it's absolutely insane. And I, I mean, like I could go into a little bit of the history of of the whole political maneuvering. But the point is, the second that the far right gets into government, they will push it to the extreme. Yeah, you They let one Nazi guy into the government of Thuringia in the 1929, and he made a eugenics program. He started this like intense anti-pacifism campaign where he banned films like All Quiet on the Western Front. He... Um, was insane and so we just can't allow any of the far right to break their way into government um it, it just it freaks me out yeah uh, and the most extreme members of the afd are actually found in thuringia this is actually the guy bjorn hawk uh bjorn hawk he's the guy who is chanting nazi stormtrooper slogans at his political rallies oh. and that the uh german court system has allowed him to be called a nazi without defamation it it feels i mean Again, it just resonates with what we're talking about with Poland, what we're talking about with Hungary. It, when you have these these former Soviet states that have never really bounced back, they have had tons of emigration. Even though Germany as a whole is a strong economy, that tends to be that that is centered in the West. Very right? centered in the West. Thuringia is not a very prosperous region right now, and that's why they're dipping into this national you know this nationalist hatred exactly exactly and uh uh it is yeah it's frightening and of course you have you have berlin that's in the east that is a little it's an enclave because of course half of berlin was democratic and was kind of taken by the west um during the cold war but when you're not doing well people are leaving you're one of the people who remains you start holding on to whatever kind of sense of identity you have. And the easiest way to establish your identity as something that you're proud of, weirdly enough, when you're not prosperous, mm -hmm. is to put others down, right? And so you have the AFD that seizes on these anti-immigrant um, notions and on anti-LGBT rhetoric. And it it's all about putting down the other to kind of only in name to raise up yourself yeah right only you can you can say that they're worse and they're the problem so you can sleep better at night about you not being the problem um and so they're taking advantage in these places that are that are struggling which of course is what what fascist movements always do of course and it's terrifying of course it, it, it just this is 
par and parcel. And we see this very common in American history from its inception. Mm -hmm. Lyndon B. Johnson had the best quote on this. If you can convince the lowest white man, he's better than the best colored man. This is a quote from the 1960s. Um, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. Yeah. And it can't be more. It's, it's, it is universal. Okay, whether you're in Germany or the US, if someone can pick out another and tell them that you're better than them and tell them that they're stealing from you and tell them that they're evil, they're demonic, you'll take it. Because you're if you're poor and your life sucks and you have no economic opportunity, you'll take whatever you can get. Yeah. And so now oh. the AFD is and now I, I am pissed that the conservative party has has done this. Like, I'm shocked because for so long, the CDU under Angela Merkel was so vehemently against this. Mm -hmm. And now with the new leadership, it, the firewall's broken. And we just don't know where it might go from here. And it's that's what's so terrifying, right? You don't know where it ends. No, you don't know. And we know how it started. It started in the 30s with this the Nazis. Way. Literally this way. The exact <coughs> same way. The German party... Ooh, the German party for the middle class let the Nazis come to power. Mm. So please, just do not let the AFD take power in your par in your governments over there. Do whatever you can. I wish I could do more to help you, but I can't. Mm -mm. Um, yeah, it's a tragedy. Ugh. All right. It's when this show makes me feel bad. I know. Yeah. Deep dive. Deep dive. Let's get into it. We've already, we've already spent... A decent amount of time. So much time. But yeah. now we are going in depth on the one of the fastest growing industries in the world. Yes. So this is part four of our climate change deep dive uh, series, yeah. I suppose. We're talking about the transition to electric vehicles. So last week, we talked about the transition to renewable sources of energy. Um, electric vehicles are another hugely important part of our transition to stop emitting carbon dioxide and other fossil fuels. According to data from Climate Watch, vehicles accounted for 17% of all greenhouse gas emissions worldwide in 2019, okay? This is including land use, which means that all of the deforestation that happens um, and the the agriculture that the agriculture that's done um, it's it's still one of the absolute top. I think it's the number 2 source of greenhouse gas emissions. Wow. Um to avoid the disastrous effects of a 1.5 degree Celsius increase in global temperatures set out in the Paris Climate Accords, we will need to replace the more than 300 million internal combustion engine vehicles that are currently on the road with electric vehicles. Okay? That's insane. Um, so what does it look like as far as the breakdown in the major markets of emissions caused by vehicles? Interestingly, the richer countries have more of a share of their emissions coming from vehicles from mm. internal combustion engines so that makes sense because they've deindustrialized so much of their employer base right exactly yeah unless exactly. their jobs are manufacturing yes so the u.s is one of the countries with the highest percentage percentages of its emissions coming from its vehicles we have 31 percent of our greenhouse gases coming from uh coming from our cars and other vehicles the eu is close behind us with 26 percent, and then you have a country like Japan, which is at 18%, because Japan, it's almost like it's gotten so much more advanced that it's leaned more into public transportation. It has its bullet trains going across its country. It's a much smaller, more compact mm -hmm. country, so it makes sense that it can work this way. Their curve, 
probably looks like this, right? Like it's on the downturn. Exactly. Where the United States is just barely turning down. Yes, but it, it's, I mean, the geography, I can't see yeah. enough how big that, that's. Yeah, that's what Like to really be a small, skinny island is extremely helpful. Yeah. We are a large, massive block of landmass, mm-hmm. as is the EU, obviously. Um, so we, we tend to need cars more to get around. But then you have China, which is sitting at 8%. You have India, which is sitting at 9%. This is because... These still aren't advanced economies by GDP per capita. We talk about China all the time because, yes, it has the biggest, G- the second biggest GDP in the world, but on a GDP per capita level, it is not really close to any of these other rich countries. It's not close to the U.S. It's not close to Japan. It's not close to Western European countries like Great Britain, Germany, France, etc. Because of that, it's still on the lower end, right? Because China is still highly, heavily industrialized. Mm-hmm. So all of these emissions are coming out of its factory production. Um, and that's so that's just to set the stage of like, where are we looking? Who it has the biggest burdens? I, I think it's, it's important to know that the US, we're such a big emitter of carbon and a huge portion of our emissions, the biggest portion of our emissions comes from our vehicles. So we do have the biggest burden to transition fast. Which is actually an amazing and beneficial thing for us because the solution is right here, right? The solution to 31% of our carbon emissions is through technology that is already created. Yes. Right? There doesn't need to be this big technological breakthrough. There needs to be an upscaling of our industrial capacity to make them, which we will go in depth about. Yeah. But as of right now, we have the technology to do it. It's only about doing it. And do we have the political will to do it? Totally, totally. Which I do, which, yes, we're going to get to. There's a lot to go into that. I'm going to give a little bit more of the big picture. Mm-hmm. What share of the market do EVs have right now? Worldwide, 14% of all new cars sold in 2022 were electric, which is actually awesome. 15% of new cars for the first half of 2023 we're electric. And we have a graph here that shows the increase. And my God, is it an exponential yeah, increase? It's just so fast. 1.4% of new car sales in 2017 were electric, 2.3% in 2018, 2.6% in 2019. In 2020, during a COVID year, 4.2% of EVs. In 2021, 8.7% were EVs. In 2022, 14%. So this thing is ramping up super fast. It's exactly what we want to see. But we're still going to talk about where is this happening more? Where is this happening less? Where do we need to ramp up? Where do we have um, the most burden? So I want to interject there for a second because there, when you said that we have 14% new car sales, right? That differentiates based on country a lot. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the EU, we're looking at 25% new car sales, 20% new car sales. We look at the US. Are you sure? It's only like... 6% 6% new car sales or EVs. I don't know if it's 20, 20. For, the, for the EU. I think it's like 10 for the EU. And then how could it be 14? I think it's 25 for China. Oh. China's blowing us away gotcha. in this. Gotcha. Um, that's that's the data that I've seen at least. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the U, so the US is like 5%. Like we just yeah. passed yeah. the 5% threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so this, this is where it gets more interesting. China is absolutely carrying growth right now okay china sold 25 percent of its new cars as evs in 2022 it's insane it's it's carrying its weight like we talk about how china bears a lot of the brunt it is the leading emitter in the world but it's not the leading emitter per capita and a big part of it is because it is heavily invested in evs the eu is still doing better than us it's like it's at 10 percent. the us is at five percent so it's not 
We're not looking great, okay? So the question is, why is China doing so well? Why are we not doing so well? Well, China's growth has been so fast because there's there's a long story here. In the early 2000s, late 90s, China looked at its automobile industry and it was the 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 general thought was we can't compete with these legacy German brands, these legacy Japanese brands, these legacy American brands. We're not going to be able to break in domestically, much less internationally. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing some of these Japanese brands are starting to go hybrid and they're starting to take a hold on on that market. It's probably not a great idea to invest there. But no one's looking at fully electric yet. So maybe this is somewhere that we can get our foot in the door and we can really carve out a niche for ourselves. Plus, it comes with the bonus of curbing our own air pollution because China has horrible air pollution and reducing its reliance on imported oil, which we've talked about in our China deep dives about how dependent it is on external sources, including the U.S., on oil imports to actually power its economy. Massively rely on international oil. Yeah. So it liked this idea a lot. Plus, it had the manufacturing capabilities and cheap commodities for gas car manufacturing because it was still doing a lot of the manufacturing of some of these cars in in its country, and that could be shifted. So it started to ramp things up in the early 2000s, and then 2008 hit. Right, And it saw an opportunity with the global financial crisis where it's like, we can help fuel our economy by putting a ton of money into our EVs. Mm-hmm. And from 2009 to 2022, this is always the story with China, right? A ton of government subsidies drives its industries. It poured $29 billion over that 13-year period into EV-relevant subsidies and tax breaks, enabling companies to develop their models even though they weren't selling many cars, right? Mm-hmm. So it they're researching, they're driving their costs down, and they're building out the manufacturing capacity, which is so important to get all of the work done there and make the supply chains cheaper. So China gave these subsidies to everyone, not just national companies. So Tesla got these, which paved the way for Tesla to build a mega factory in Shanghai Elon met with Xi like six months ago or something because of this. They still have really tight relations. And this has really been great for both parties, right? Because Elon and Tesla got all of the subsidies from China that it needed to lower its costs. And China gets the draw of the Tesla mega factory Mm -hmm. to attract more investment from other companies to fuel the industry and have the knowledge base sitting there on its own shores. Okay. One really cool wrinkle that that Chinese manufacturers have done that's been different from Western manufacturers is what they've done with batteries, okay? Oh, yeah, that's the whole story. It is totally. It's So batteries are usually like 40% of the cost of these EVs. Yep. So they're a huge deal. Chinese companies have championed lithium iron phosphate batteries, which are called LFP batteries, over lithium nickel manganese cobalt, or nickel manganese cobalt NMC batteries, which are more popular in the West. So with LFP batteries that China uses, they're cheaper and safer, but there was a gap in energy density. Mm. Okay, so the performance was, plus they performed worse in the cold. They were less reliable. So Western companies were afraid to use them and sell them in cars because of that reliability problem. But since China stuck with it, they made advances in research to close the gap in energy density so they're able to make their cars that much cheaper and get them out and build its market up faster. 
right? Do we know what the range differences between those batteries are? That I don't know. Okay. No. Okay. I don't I don't know if there if there is a range difference. Damn. Maybe there is. Okay. Um cuz I so when I see China's like China has such an amazing strategic advantage yeah. over the battery production line. Um they're number 1 on the EV battery supply chain ranking um in not just in terms of uh raw material accessibility mm. but also their ability to refine it so china is currently where 80 percent of global refining of raw materials takes place needed for these batteries yeah. and it has 60 percent of the world's graphite production which is needed for these batteries <laughs> i mean yeah. it's insane it is it's insane now yeah. on that same list it ranks the top 25 united states is at 15 the united states Oof. does not have a lot of the uh, resources that are needed to mine to get it and doesn't have the refining capabilities at the moment yeah. to really get there it's the refinery that's the real that's real the real issue. kicker yeah right because we can get the we can get the raw materials we've made agreements with australia as we talked about who is number two on this list and they are rich in lithium it produces almost half of the world's lithium as the second largest nickel reserves mm -hmm. it is a massive key player in this but we can get the raw materials if we can't refine it that's when we're going to have problems doesn't matter right it yeah. doesn't matter now I, I, I want to go into the battery production pipeline. Please. Okay. So there's four things that you have to think about. The upstream of the battery production, the midstream, the downstream, and then the end of life. So what is the upstream production? Well, that is the least value-added activities. That is the mines extracted raw materials for batteries. These raw materials typically contain lithium, cobalt, manganese, nickel, and graphite. Um, when we look at access to raw materials in a breakdown... China is number one. Luckily, Canada is also high up there, which is good because we're a good trading partner with Canada. They have a massive nickel reserve in Canada. But that is very, very difficult for us to compete with China when they have such a strategic advantage of the upstream. Okay, and then when we go into the midstream, well, inside of this upstream, there are other things that we have to consider. This is where most human rights abuses are most likely going to happen. Mm -hmm. When we have mines, that is most frequently linked with child labor and poor labor practices, right? There is a high political concern about the negative impacts of new extractive developments, especially in the United States, about indigenous communities, uh, in the, uh, Native American reserves. In the U.S., the majority of nickel, copper, lithium, and cobalt lie within 35 miles of Indian country. That's a big issue mm -hmm. for us on a human scale, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what is good news about the upstream uh, globally is that we have enough minerals. There are enough minerals on the world to make this EV transition. We know it's possible. But this work will require significant investment, and the U.S. alone will need to invest $175 billion in the next two or three years to match China's battery production. Yeah. I mean, and that's this, just for the upstream. This is just for the raw materials. Yeah. That's the issue. And it's it's hard because it takes uh, where the math is starts to get really hard. And this is why like climate change conversations can be really depressing is that we're racing against the clock and it takes time to build this infrastructure. Yeah, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. And now the midstream, there is good opportunity for America in the midstream, which is good. Mm -hmm. So Midstream is where America really could expand and the downstream, okay? So the United States has a good advantage to expand their uh, capabilities in EVs 
batteries through the midstream. So the midstream is the processors and refineries to purify the raw materials to then make to then use them to create cathode and anode active battery materials. So processing, this involves removing unneeded materials from the minerals and then refining, which involves working with these process materials to achieve a purity level that makes them suitable for use in many products, including batteries. Um, now, like the upstream portion of the EV battery supply chain, the midstream portion is concentrated in a very small number of countries right now. The vast majority is done in China. Here we have 70% of cathode capacity and processes um, and refines more than half of the world's lithium, cobalt, and graphite. I mean, the, the process to decouple from China is going to be just a national nightmare. Yeah, this is... This is... I mean, it's it's this and it's solar cells and and wind turbines, right? This right. is where they they have us by the balls. Yep, it's insane. Yeah. Now it it is also the leading refiner of battery metals globally and currently hosts seventy five percent of all battery cell manufacturing ca capacity, ninety mm -hmm. percent of anode and electrolyte production, and sixty percent of the world's battery uh, component manufacturing. So China has us by the balls. Yeah. On the midstream right now. I do wonder how much. Okay. How much leverage do they have? How much or how much leverage is it advantageous for them to use? Right. Because they want the world to transition. Like, she isn't stupid. He might be surrounded by people who are just yes men, which he has made to be the case because he's purged anyone who might ever come at him, right? So he's kind of gotten rid of most of the competent people. But she himself knows that it is in China's interest to combat climate change. I honestly, I don't even think he's looking at, I don't think that's the calculation. I think his calculation is China's making a lot of money off this. So we just, want to keep this going just, for as long as possible. Okay. That's what I think, right? But if, if, the, if money is the end all be all, then the U.S. market is the gold mine. Yes. But you, I, do you not think China wants to break into the U.S. market? No, I think they do. That's why I'm saying, like, does it... They do have have us by the balls, but it only matters if they squeeze. Oh, right, right. So I don't know. I don't know if it'll ever be in their best interest to squeeze. I agree with you. I don't think there's ever. An, I don't think there's an incentive for them to squeeze. No. I think there's an incentive for us to be the buyer right now. Yeah. Uh, for them, and you know, I, we definitely need to transition away from that and create our own processes, and that's what the Inflation Reduction Act is doing. Mm. Um, so China controls like seventy percent of it. Okay, seventy percent goes to China. Now the next two people on the list are South Korea and Japan, but it's not even like close. It's 15% for South Korea and Japan accounts for like 14% or something like that. Yeah. It's like super low. It's, it's, it's nothing compared to what China is. China is, uh, it's hilariously dominant in, in refining capacity. Yes. But now the U.S. is responding. So as I said before, the U.S. has signed mineral agreements with Australia and Japan and is preparing to boost this part of the supply chain. And through the Advanced Manufacturing Production Credit, um, they has it has a massive ability and potential to increase the U.S.'s capacity in this sector. So what this does is it offers $45 per kilowatt hour of battery capacity um, paid out for this. So not you don't just get money for selling the refined material, you get paid money from the federal government just for refining the material at all. Mm. That's all, yes. Yeah, which is kind of what, like, 
China has this process so down that that's the only way that it can be economically viable. Exactly. Exactly. Um, as far as it comes for human rights, which I do think is important to talk about, we definitely need to boost up our traceability of the batteries and to know where they come from. Mm. And we need to understand, like, we need to improve the traceability for human rights so we know what mines are getting used, what companies are doing, what their labor practices are. It's also important so we can understand bottlenecks very fast and protect ourselves from geopolitical risks. We yeah. need to know where the batteries are coming from, which I, is something that's lacking at the moment. I do agree. I, it reminds me of the conversation we had about union-driven electric vehicle transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a, a long discussion on whether we were okay selling our souls to corporate overlords to save the planet, basically. Yeah. And you pointed out, like, I don't think I'd, you don't think I'd be down for all of us being sold into slavery in order to save the world from cli- from climate change. Yeah. And I agreed with that. And I think, I think I would also draw the line before children mining in yes. horrible conditions. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So now we're on to the downstream. Now, Battery man- the downstream is battery manufacturers assemble the battery cells into modules and then pack them and sell them to automakers. Mm-hmm. Now, Chinese, South Korean, and Japanese companies dominate this globally, but some automakers like Ford and Stellantis, in partnership with battery manufacturers in the United States, are starting to produce batteries on their own, and that's what the UAW is fighting to unionize right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what GM has said, that they are already going to unionize, yeah. already of... Uh, in alignment with collective bargaining. So Chinese, South Korean, and Japanese companies dominate global battery manufacturing. Together, these, com- these countries account for 70% of the battery market in 2021, which is just insane. Yeah. One company, China's CATL, is 33% of the entire market. Wow. One company. South Korea's LG Energy Solution, 22%. Ooh. Japan's Panasonic, 15%. Ugh. massive monopoly massive market power yeah that's exactly what we hated to read about in stiglitz exactly dude Oof. uh the market power that these companies have is insane yeah oh um, i'm i mean this like honestly i should get off of this this podcast and then invest in catl it's, it's true yeah yeah i mean obviously um, we'll do that <laughs> <laughs> do that yeah do that do that yeah we can't it's not financial advice <laughs> That's illegal. All right. North America is poised to become the second largest player in the battery production market, though, because of the effort that is happening with the advanced manufacturing production credit and the IRA. So right now, it's only responsible for 70% of the world's production capacity. Seven. What did I say? 70. Oh, whoops. Yeah. Responsible for 7%, but that is going to increase, and it's going to increase fast. Ford is working on diversifying its raw material suppliers. General Motors and LG have partnered to co-locate battery pack and cell production at the time of this writing. They have one active plant in Ohio and have plans to open two others in Tennessee and Michigan. And those are the ones that GM has said that they will be uh, collectively bargaining with the UAW. Incredible. Cool. And then end of life. Batteries no longer serve their original purpose. They can be reused or recycled. Right now, most of that is in China, but that needs to change. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they kind of need to be. I mean, the, the raw materials do exist, but it's going to be, we're going to get more return on investment by ramping up some of our recycling capabilities mm-hmm. and reusing those materials than 
continuing to get the diminishing returns of oh, more mining. Totally. And that's why like so many like phone companies want you to return phones back to the Verizon store because they make money selling that phone back to somebody. Totally. They make a lot of money selling your broken and old phones because all that stuff that's in there, all the aluminum, all the graphite, yeah. that's expensive. I mean, they want it. They can probably like most of the chips like they don't need to melt down the metal and reuse it. They're just taking the chips right out of there and they're like, yeah, we can keep working oh, that's, with these. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we know a lot about chips. Uh, one of the many themes of the show. Mm. Um, so what are the biggest obstacles of scaling up? Um, for Chinese companies, it might be precarious to sell in big US, Japan, EU, Canada markets during with geopolitical tensions. So that that's interesting because that makes it hard for EU and the U.S. to make it if their Chinese counterparts are reluctant to sell. But we've kind of talked about how I don't think that's going to happen, right? No, no. They want – it's the same strategy China's employed for decades. They gain power mm-hmm. by being an exporter, right? Yes. By having other countries dependent on them as a manufacturer. Yes. So I think these companies will be hopeful at least mm-hmm. to export and we're just going to see whether – the government cracks down at all right and there now here are some of the bottlenecks specifically in the united states uh first and then we'll go a little global here so in the u.s and eu car makers have really prioritized increasing how far electric vehicles can travel on one charge so even though the energy density is getting better we're using the improvements we've gotten to go longer range instead of lowering the cost um which is hard especially in the united states which is such a big country that doesn't have a lot of good public transit it is important that these things can travel for long periods of time either travel for long periods of time or have a more robust charging network and we will talk about the charging network because we've made progress there yeah because right now we are lacking mm-hmm. at the moment um the ev market also currently lasts economies of scale we don't currently have massive companies that are producing evs that can just churn out Four day, you know what I mean. That doesn't really. That's well, a bit. I don't know how many you make a day. No. Well, we well China does. Right. China does. China does, and that's again. Last week we talked about the learning curve with um, solar and wind. This pushed their cost, their their marginal cost down below any fossil fuel um, sourced energy generation. Right. China has. They're further along to have driven that learning curve up where. Like the cost is going down and down. Like the cost is getting less and less the more and more they produce. Exactly. And we're fur- we're further behind on that curve. Yes. But even China still isn't like they haven't really hit the exponential point of that curve. Right. They have ways to go. Right. Um, the United States, I-, I think that the United States should totally invoke the Defense Production Act mm. and really take government's heavy hand and make all this stuff happen ASAP. I think the defense the I think the Defense Production Act is I can't think of another thing that's more necessary. I think it's I I don't know, heavy executive action just scares me. I I agree with the efficacy mm-hmm. of it, but it's the type of, I don't know, I always hear Chancellor Palpatine's words ringing in my ear. Oh, no, I get it. I get it. Cuz it's not like it's not what the Defense Production Act was meant for. Right. right. To make well, it is. I think it is. No, because we're not at war. Well, we're at war with the climate change. It's going to kill us all. I mean, it's going to kill more people than any war ever, right? True, true. But I, uh, I think I the want, biggest. I want Congress to declare. See, this is what's funny. This is exactly what Bernie said in 2016. He was asked on the debate stage with Hillary Clinton, "What is the largest geopolitical problem, or like who is our biggest threat internationally?" And he said, "Climate change." He said that on purpose. He said that so that he would have 
the legal authority to declare a climate emergency and invoke the Defense Production Act because it's our largest geopolitical national security issue. Yes. Because it destroys everything, right? True. So there's a legal argument to be made. Um, yeah. Yes. Now, now, getting off the prescription here about the, the, the DPA, um, research firms have estimated that due to material shortages, battery cell prices may surge throughout the next few years, which is really unfortunate. And that's because we don't have the mining or mm. refining capability to get the materials ready as fast as we need them. Yeah. We have the materials in the ground, but we don't have the capability to get them out of the ground and refined at the scale that we need. So there are suggestions that prices will sure surge 22% from 2023 through 2026, peaking at $138 per kilowatt hour before they resume a steady decline through 2031, which will then possibly get them to as low as 90 kilowatts uh, per kilowatt hour, which is great. But for these next four years, there is definitely still going to be an issue getting EVs to a reasonable price point. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. I think we're almost fortunate. Maybe this is a problem that like <coughs> Tesla is going to lead this, but they're they're really going, all these car companies are going to be trying to push their prices as low as possible because they can see that right now the time to gain market share is there. True. Right. And the it isn't a really saturated market with really established players. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be good for the consumer. I also think the fact that auto companies themselves are investing directly in lithium mines all over the world. Yep. And like they're sending their people to prospect at these mines and buy directly from them is going to definitely going to help obviously ramp up the supply of the needed materials faster. Um, there will still be a little bit of a gap, but the right moves are being made yes. to catch up. And on top of all that, right, this only emphasizes how necessary it is to recycle these materials. Yeah. If we're going to be this short in the materials in the next four years, there's a massive incentive for the market. For If you're like in the battery industry, you're going to want to become a recycling company right away. Yes. And so now I want to talk about the electric vehicle battery recycling market is projected to reach $2.2 billion by 2025 growing at a CAGR rate of 41.8% from 2018 to 2025. Wow. That's insane. It's insane. Now, the U.S. Department of Energy has projected that recycled material could potentially provide one-third wow. of United States cathode materials needed for lithium-ion batteries by 2030. That's fantastic. And so that that is the beauty of capitalism. Sure. There, there aren't many of them. That's the beauty of it. Hey, let's not. Okay. Yeah. All right. Listen, capitalism does good things. We could argue about that. This is one of them that does good. Okay, yeah. it immediately was like, oh wait, there's money to be made here. Let's let's go right away. Exactly. And sometimes now, the that. profit motive aligns with the common good. Sometimes that happens, and when it does, oh baby, yeah, nothing is better than that. It's amazing. And that's how we have one third of U.S. cathode materials for ion batteries by 2030 coming from recycled materials. It's insane. That's great. No, it's insane. Um. Yeah, this here, this next chart I have here is just talking about what portion of the cost is batteries. And you can see batteries are, you know, 40% the cost. Yeah. Easy. Um, yeah, it just gets insane. Um, now, you, we were talking a lot about the current state of our charging infrastructure. Now, this is really interesting. Currently in the U.S., we only have 58,000 across the whole country. 
You can wow. go on the Department of Energy's website and actually look at a map where all of them are. Yeah. Um, I guess oh. that's to map out road trips. Yeah, exactly. Right. But there's only 58,000 of them in the whole country. Well, Congress, a part of its bipartisan infrastructure bill, has allocated $7.5 billion to build half a million. That half a million from 58,000? That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that, that's like a thousand percent more. That, that's going to take us overnight Yeah, into an electric vehicle possible um, infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like there's still, I feel like even 58,000 might be enough. Not 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 completely enough, mm-hmm. but the map I'm seeing at least enough for regional. Like mm. like they're viable in the northeast. Oh yeah, they're vi- right? viable in the northeast. They're viable sure. in the northeast. They're south, not. They're not. They're not viable in the south. No, they're viable on the west coast in mm-hmm. California. Right? Maybe it's it's going to get iffy as you go up through Portland and Seattle a little bit. But regionally, northeast, you're they're chilling. covered. Yeah. You're chilling if you're in the northeast. You want to get an EV, you're chilled. Yeah. Um, but. Other countries are doing better with their EV transition than others. And I want to focus on um, China's, as you said, mm-hmm. and kind of how the how nations are mandating the transition to EVs okay. and how the United States is behind on that. Okay. So in Norway, um, it aims to have 100% zero emission cars by 2025. If we look at a chart right now, I think it's 93% of all new cars are sold are EVs. I think it's 93%, something around there. It's 85 to 93. Okay. Netherlands, 100% electric vehicle sales by 2030. Looks like they're going to hit it. India, 30% electric mobility by 2030. China, 20 to 25 of new car sales be electric by 2025. They already hit it. Wow. France, ban on fossil fuel powered cars by 2040. Full ban on fossil fuel cars by 2040. UK, ban on sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles by 2030 and hybrids by 2035 massively fixing massively uh mandating this germany ban on combustion engines by 2030 the united states does not have an equivalent to that and you know i saw a survey today that's extremely relevant to this and part of the reason that we're lagging is cultural yeah because and you can you can just feel it like i would have a hard time putting it into words but it does feel like there is something american about driving a gas-powered car for that reason, when they were surveyed, 46% of American adults said that they want to drive a gas-powered car. God, that's so depressing. It, Why? It's brutal. I mean, you know. I know, I yeah, know. You it's know. just so depressing that it it's does. become political. Yeah. I know. We need, like, I don't know. We, we need a loud electric vehicle, yeah, almost. That, that's so funny. Could you imagine an electric vehicle that revs? Like, it's just like a, like, it's just like a speaker. Yeah. It, we need we need an electric vehicle that's like designed just to make people think that it is a gas powered car. Yeah. Um. But it is it's a real problem. Like I there's someone who's um our friend Matt his brother is up with us right now and we were talking about this and he was in the conversation he was like yeah I want a gas car yeah it's just it's just like a preference for some that's so funny. car lovers yeah that's so funny I know it's a nightmare though um it's something that we got to break. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you think about it, it's kind of, I kind of can liken it to veganism. Yeah, sure. Right? Like, I know that veganism is better for the environment. And I think the vast majority of people who know that aren't vegan. True. I mean, I know that. I'll never go vegan. Exactly. Right? So that's... That's fair. That's tough. That's That's tough. But but it also feels, I don't know, it feels like that's, that's more, like... 
uh, intrinsic to the experience. Like I could, I mean, here's the thing. I could go vegan if I had foods that felt and tasted exactly like the non-vegan right. foods that if, I like. If synthetic meat, which I'm a big believer in synthetic meat, yeah. if synthetic meat reaches the good stage where it tastes just like cattle beef, I'll never eat cattle beef again. Exactly. So we're kind of, that's the thing. We're we're already there with electric cars, and yet because it's politicized, because it's some kind of status, mm-hmm. some kind of status symbol to have a gas-powered car. I don't know what exactly status it's giving you, but it is giving you something. Um, people aren't completely there. Yeah. Um, United States might not have an equivalent to a mandate, but it has something similar to cap and trade Hmm. across the country. Now, it's not in every state, but some states have opted into this program, the ZEV program. What this does is it assigns each automaker ZEV credits. Automakers are required to maintain ZEV credits equal to a set percentage of non-electric sales. So they're only allowed to have a certain percentage of non-electric sales, just Mm -hmm. like cap and trade. You Mm -hmm. can only have a certain percentage of carbon emissions. Each car sold earns a number of credits based on the types of ZEVs and its battery range. The credit requirement is 7% in 2019. So this is how it's kind of working. This was started in California, um, which will require about 3% of the sales to be ZEVs. Now, this has expanded across the country. It, it exists in Oregon, Washington, California, Nevada, New Mexico, Colorado, Minnesota, um, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Vermont, Maine, Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey. Um, there are some equivalents in Texas and Illinois and Michigan, but not not really. There's purchase incentives, but it's not the ZEV system. Okay. Um, but I think that's I think that's a really good American solution. I agree. Right? I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're not you're not taking the market into your own hands you're just tweaking a little bit yes and now what's great is automakers this is what we talked about with cap and trade and now determines the price of petrol vehicles Mm -hmm. because you can if you go too high like if you exceed your zev credits you can put your zev credits on the market other companies that have not reached their zev credit limit yet can buy your zve credits on the market and they can decide when it becomes not profitable anymore to move away from petrol yeah that's really cool i think that's really great i think it's an awesome system Mm -hmm. um now the last thing i have on here is talking about the u.s market share and what companies are currently dominating okay that's the last thing i got yeah um tesla currently makes up 53 percent of ev sales in the u.s um, after that, it's nine, 10% with Chevrolet, Toyota's at 7%, BMW's at 6%, Honda's at 5%, Nissan's at 4%. What have you noticed about all these yet? Have you noticed anything? Because I've noticed something, and it's really sad. Non-union. Non-union, and not in the U.S. except Tesla. Yeah. Not union, though, baby. And then we get to Ford, which is at 2.5, Chrysler 1.9. Oh. The debate that we had. It's, Are it's unions going to be able to capture this industry? It's so scary. Well, here's the real question. Are companies going to be able to let go of their near-term greed? Right? To transition to yeah. gas? Like to, to cut the salaries of executives, to stop the stock buybacks. Mm. Will they be able to do that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm doubtful. I'm doubtful too. They're just too used to their lifestyles. The, the, the Congress needs to pass legislation that bans stock buybacks. Stock buybacks used to be illegal until the 1980s, and it was considered market manipulation. And then under our favorite president, Ronald Reagan. Of course. Of course. course. He he took that regulation away. Now, 
without that incentive, the companies would be forced to reinvest in production to grow their profit margins mm-hmm. instead of just and to return value back to shareholders instead of just buying back their own stock. Um, but Ford only controlling 2.5% of the market is so sad. But yeah. it's what's crazy to me is, right, Tesla is 54% of all EV sales, but only 1% of all car sales. This is by, this is right now? This is right now. Okay. Tesla is 54%. Uh, does that make sense? Maybe, no. no, it might be two years ago. This might be two years ago data. Yeah, yeah. Tw- I'm, it looks like 21. Yeah, okay, yeah. This is 2021 then. Yeah. Um, but I, I just think it's crazy that Ford and Chrysler are so far behind. It's not even Chrysler anymore. It's Stellantis. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. They're they're saddled with unions. Yeah, shut up. I'll fucking. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that is EVs. America yeah. has a lot of work to do. And we are in a tight race with China and the rest of the world. But I'm hopeful with the Inflation Reduction Act that we've made progress. Yeah, here. that's the thing. Our eye is definitely on the ball. This is in the media. This is at the this is this has the attention of the president that's where it needs to be right that means it should just be a matter of time hell yeah cool thanks guys goodbye